aquaculture, fisheries policy, and science. It was assumed to be a science in uh, in the mid 19th century, and the uh, panacea to uh, to uh, you know problems of uh, of supply and demand, and that uh, fish culture would uh, would solve these would solve these problems simple simple linear you know inputs and and outputs. A conversation about the history of fisheries in Canada. I'm Sean Carrage, and you're listening to episode 35 of Nature's Past, the fifth part of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues. So we're back, and we are talking this month about the history of fisheries in Canada. And of course, uh, we're joined uh, by our regular assistant hosts, Andrew Watson. Hello. And Stacey Nation Canapper. Hello. Fisheries in Canada has been uh, kind of a point of controversy within at least the past, uh, what, 10, 10 months or so since the federal government passed Bill C-38, the what's sometimes called the Omnibus Budget Bill or Budget Implementation Bill, which included a whole host of changes to environmental law in Canada and in particular for our case today, changes to the Fisheries Act. So, Andrew, can you tell us what the significant changes were to the Fisheries Act that occurred with the uh, passage of the budget bill last summer? Sure. Yeah. This this uh, this Fisheries Act, the changes to this fishery to the Fisheries Act, really has a um, has a lot to do with like how uh, the government regulates or protects these bodies of water that contains uh, fish in Canadian waters. Mm-hmm. And the and the the focus of the changes was to uh, deregulate certain streams or bodies of water that contain fish that aren't important for either commercial or cultural, which basically means sport fishing, mm-hmm. uh, or aboriginal fisheries. Mm-hmm. So anything that doesn't fall within any of those one mandates, the fisheries and protected uh, habitat for these fish in these uh, protected bodies of water, is sort of uh, um, no longer protected under the Government Fisheries Act. So previously the Fisheries Act used to be much more open-ended in terms of its definition of what aquatic life it protected. Across the country, every body of water that contained fish in And now the Fisheries Act only narrowly protects commercial fisheries, cultural fisheries, understood to mainly be sports fisheries, and aboriginal fisheries. Correct. And then there was a change of language to the law, too, in the change toward the prohibition on se- of serious harm to one of these particular fisheries but what what does the law mean by serious harm I the really the the focus here is like only on uh, on habitat or serious harm towards habitat for these particular species of fish that uh, people in the country under these three different types of mm-hmm. fisheries um, could deem as being important for humans. Mm-hmm. So unless humans can find some use for these fish or are deemed to be useful for human purposes, they don't really qualify as as undercoming under serious harm. And harm was specifically described as permanent damage. So I guess the previous Fisheries Act for the past 35 years included language like uh, uh, to, to prevent disturbance or disruption to aquatic life habitat, and now serious harm is defined as permanent damage. So there's been a lot of critique from environmental groups about these changes. Um, what's What has been the tone of that critique? Um, well, one of the critiques about um, these changes is that uh, it's opening the gateway, it's opening doors to um, to expand development 
um, along Canadian waterways and that will harm um, existing habitats for fish that aren't deemed protectable under these new changes. And, um, and those include um, the creation of pipelines, as we talked about before, and also um, the creation of larger scale developments along waterways um, in Canada, rivers, uh, lakes, and, uh, and oceans as well. Um, and also, the, one of the other um, elements that's discussed in the changes to the Fisheries Act is the closure of the Experimental Lakes um, area in northwest Ontario. And um, one of the reasons that this is brought up is uh, that the research that occurs at the Experimental Lakes area um, has taught us a lot about um, human impacts on Canadian fisheries. So, for instance, the um, research that was done that taught us that phosphates in water um, from our soaps, from detergents and such, um, creates algal blooms um, and affects Canadian inland fisheries. That was done ex at Experimental Lakes. And so um, folks concerned with um, with these environmental research facilities are, are criticizing the the bill for these reasons as well. And you've got the, so you'd have a, a whole suite of different issues here. So cuts to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, changes to the Fisheries Act, even the Navigable Waters, changes mm -hmm. to Navigable Waters right. Act, as well as the closing of this experimental lakes area are all sort of part and parcel of a larger sort of effort by the Canadian government to make it easier for the kinds of developments, oil pipeline development, industrial uh, economic development that, uh, that Stacey just So mentioned. do you think then that the critique um, that these amendments to not just the Fisheries Act but also the Navigable Waterways Act and the Canadian Environmental Protection Act have been intended to make it easier or to facilitate industrial development or industrial exploitation of natural resources? Well, it's, I think that the um, exploitation for economic benefit has definitely been a theme throughout um, governmental justifications of these changes. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that um, uh, cl closing the Experimental Lakes facility um, then shifts the responsibility of this research to the universities. And so that's one part of this argument. But then also um, the notion that um, opening up the definition of, or I guess restricting the definition of which fish are protected, then opens up the availability for increased um, fishing and increased um, uh, development. And therefore, the logic is that it increases economic benefit. Mm -hmm. Although um, some of the critiques of, of these changes say that, that so far, um, there has not been the economic benefits um, to, to support those claims, that that's exactly what's happening. And the basis seems to be it's not about uh, holistic science or ecosystem-based science anymore. It's mostly the criteria is based on an economic rationale. So a lot of the scientists, mm -hmm. even some of the old fishery, uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans ministers, have identified this significant shift in the, in the policy objectives of of, of this legislation. Mm -hmm. And this kind of brings up a theme we explored in the last couple of episodes when we looked at the environmental movement is a kind of tension between environmental protection and economic development that seems to be a common thread in Canadian environmental history and I think that tension is very evident in the case of fisheries. So this seems like a turning point, a significant transformation in the relationship between federal regulators, fisheries scientists, and industry here now, which occurred in 2012 and we're now living with in 2013. But that relationship has taken different forms since Confederation. 
and fisheries has uh, uh, the Canadian fishery has been a major component of Canada's economic development and a major component of structuring the relationship between Canadians and the natural environment. And as we've done with each of these topics, we're going to talk to some specialists in the field of Canadian fisheries history. So I'm Doug Harris. I'm in the Met's Chair in Legal History in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. Hi, I'm Lisa Piper, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Alberta. I'm Will Knight. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Carleton University in Ottawa. I'm uh, Dean Babington, Associate Professor in Geography at Memorial University. And I'm Stephen Bocking, Professor in Environmental and Resource Science and Studies Program at Trent University. Welcome, everybody. I'm uh, glad to have uh, such an excellent panel of uh, researchers uh, who focus in, in one way or another on uh, histories associated with Canadian fisheries. Um, and today we're trying to get a general sense of what some of the broadest changes have been to the history of fisheries in Canada uh, since Confederation, but of course we'll probably talk a little bit about periods before 1867. So I, I wanted to, to open the floor first perhaps to, to Dean to give us a sense uh, from his perspective of, of what some of the, the most significant changes have been to the regulation of Canadian fisheries since 1867, since Confederation. Yeah, well, thanks, Sean. Um, I guess from from my perspective, just interested in how fish, uh, how fisheries, fish, fishermen have become managed. I guess for me, the most uh, most important change or way in which fish have become managed would be understanding them as populations or stocks, hmm. um, as and therefore quantifiable. Um, entities as opposed and things that can can therefore produce uh, provide natural resources to feed into the development of, of modern industries a fishing industry I would say that would be the most significant change I don't necessarily see that being tied to Canada as a nation but definitely to um, the development of or the industrialization of fisheries in towards the middle towards the end of the 19th century. Yeah, um, it's Will here. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, and I'll push it just a little bit farther back because I'm interested in actually that inauguration of fisheries administration. So that that moment where you know fisheries is actually assembled as a as an administrative object, um, and that mm -hmm. precedes confederation. But it's actually just that institution of regulation and. Uh, that protection and propagation model that was uh, that was really you know the center of of, uh, of fisheries administration in in nineteenth century Canada and um, you know continued on through into the twentieth. But uh, and I guess a, a part of that too for me the biggest uh, I guess the most significant aspect in that was the privileging of sport fisheries in um, in in that's been an uneven process across Canada, but. Uh, in Ontario, in 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 uh, you know in the 19th century, and 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 partitioning fisheries, uh, fishermen and fish into these into these sort of regulatory enclosures, and that's um, you know and 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 making judgments about uh, who's fit to fish and what 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 fishing is good for, and and uh, who has the privilege to to practice it. Well, how important do you think the the British North America Act was? to some of these issues that both you, Will, and, and Dean have brought up. Um, I mean, the federal government becomes the level of government that is responsible for managing 
uh, fisheries in Canada uh, in 1867. Is there some significance to that uh, legal transformation? I guess it's it's Doug here. I, I think there is, and I would situate that change in a in a broader series of changes. Let me let me suggest four principal changes in the in the regulation of the fishery. And here I'm, I'll focus on one of the principal instruments for regulating the fishery, which is uh, which is the law and and the formal regulations. I think the first major transition is is that away from uh, management of the fishery organized by kinship-based societies. So the move away from the Aboriginal management and regulation of the fishery to a, to a state-based regulation of the fishery. And, and part of that uh, move towards a state-based is a decision within a federal structure about which order of government should assume responsibility. And in, and in Canada, the choice, at least in 1867, was, was that it would be the federal government, although that is modified subsequently. The, the second major change I would suggest within that state-based structure of regulation is is the gradual evolution of uh, of a regime that comes to create interests that are increasingly like property interests in the fishery. Mm-hmm. So it begins with a, a, a licensing regime, a requirement that you have a license, and it gradually moves through a limited license regime to increasingly now a, a system of, of quotas, of vessel quotas or transferable quotas. And so, so this evolution towards constructing property-like or property interest in the fishery. The, the third big change, I would say, is, is outside of the domestic legal sphere and in the international realm. So this is really characterized by the extension of Canadian sovereignty outwards from what had been recognized in the 19th century as the three-mile limit to a 200-mile to a exclusive economic zone. So there's a pushing out of of Canada's boundary and, and then of Canada's responsibility to to manage the fisheries and and the final change in the regulation of the fishery I, I think that's that's most important is the recognition of Aboriginal and treaty rights uh, the 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 extension of a, of a set of protections that flow from the constitutional guarantee of, of Aboriginal treaty rights in Section 35 and and developed in cases like Sparrow and Marshall and leading to things like an Aboriginal fishery strategy. So I think these these four things that transition from a kinship-based to a state-based society, the, the creation of property or property-like interests, the, the extension of, of Canadian sovereignty and the, and the recognition of Aboriginal treaty rights, I think these are the major changes in law that that are part of the construction of our of our fisheries. Um, I want, this is Stephen. I wonder if I might just add um, one little footnote to those really interesting comments, just about the uh, how the object of regulation itself changed. Like, you know, we think of fish as swimming in water, and that water is affected by many factors of changes in temperature and nutrient contact, uh, content and other species, mm-hmm. prey and predator, and so on. But there is a really significant shift that happened more recently of focusing regulation just on the fish themselves and in effect arguing that if as long as you kept track of how many fish there were and how quickly they are growing, you really didn't need to worry too much about changes in the surrounding environment of the fish. Lisa, what do you think? Um, Is there anything that you would add here, thinking broadly about big changes to the regulation of fisheries? Um, uh, I... 
I'm actually been very interested just to hear what everyone else has to say. Um, I think maybe the only the only thing that I would add is, and this comes out of the work that I've done in sort of interior fisheries, which are very different from Atlantic and Pacific coastal fisheries, um, and that's the extent to which um, the changes in regulation have always been as much economic as they've been environmental, um, in the sense that it's been as much about um, figuring out ways to create economies that work based on fisheries as it has been about keeping fish, you know, continuing to harvest fish. Um, and it's been the ways in which that has been, the ways in which the, the economic aspects have influenced um, regulation decisions, I think, that have in many respects shaped the environment, you know, the environmental consequences that have flowed from different forms of regulation. And is that focus on economic exploitation of fish as a resource contributed to the point that Stephen raised about the, I guess, alienation of the species from its ecosystem? Um, I, <laughs> I'm sure it has. Um, but I think too, just I, when the the way that you asked the question actually provoked me to think in part, you know. Um, that many in many instances regulation came about only as a consequence of crisis or of, a, of, of concern about crisis. Um, when things were going fine, at least in the inland fisheries, they they were relatively unregulated uh, um, in by the Canadian state at least. Um, but these crises weren't always environmental; they were as often economic. Um, so, I I'm not sure that in that sense that the uh, an economic perspective is necessarily tied mm. to alienating fish from their habitat. Um, I think that has more to do with the sci- shifts in scientific understanding that Dean spoke to at the outset um, of viewing fish as, as populations. So. Well, Dean, in your case on the Atlantic coast, what, uh, what precipitated mm-hmm. regulation? No, well, I can. I, I think I. I was just thinking about something that after after those comments by by Lisa about sort of fish and how the economic uh, comes to determine whether there's a crisis or whether there's even uh, something to be managed in the first place. And I'm thinking now about what's happening uh, here in Newfoundland now as cod start to come back or at least there's some indications that the species may be at least recovering from its low points and because the economics of the fishery now there's more money coming out of the Newfoundland fishery sector now than ever before Mm -hmm. uh, primarily because of a shift towards crustaceans crab and shrimp and lobster as opposed to ground fish species and because it just so happens that in the global seafood market ground fish uh, cod fish (laughs) enters into a market of white fish which consists of many different species some wild some cultivated uh, some aquacultured uh, from all around the world that the the tendency of cod to recover now in Newfoundland is seen as potentially a negative thing uh, because of the economic impact of a return to a ground fishery as opposed to this lucrative crustacean fishery that from an ecological perspective is seen as a degraded ecosystem, fish down system, but from uh, from the global seafood market perspective is is quite lucrative for at least some people who who have access to the quotas. 
Well, I think we're starting to nip around the edges of, of the major environmental issue that we're dealing with here. And I think it's um, concern about over-exploitation of fish as a natural resource. Um, so I wanted to get a sense from this panel of historians what they saw uh, in various episodes in Canadian history as factors that led Canadians to um, exhaust uh, fish as a resource or to deplete a population of fish such that... Uh, uh, the uh, the species itself was at at threat, and maybe uh, we can start with with Lisa and her inland fisheries. Um, yeah. So there were a number of things that drove over exploitation in inland fisheries. Um, one I think that held true in the er- much of the early twentieth century was just some of, an ignorance of some of the dynamics of aquatic ecosystems um, and in turn uh, turned to reliance upon scientific management, which was then seen as a way, seen as the way to, to try to govern um, fish populations <laughs> or fish in general. Um, and you really see this with the fishery on Great Slave Lake, which was really highly trumpeted because it was going to be the first fishery that was um, commercial fishery that was ever regulated from the very outset that there was never going to be a point at which it wasn't scientifically managed and regulated it was you know as a commercial fishery Um, and they still (laughs) it still got over harvested and in that case it was because the scientific management um, essentially trumped local observation for you know for several years until finally the calls and the concerns about what was happening on the ground and the depletion in the domestic fishery uh, forced the the scientists and the federal regulators to, to pay attention so you know I think that um, that in some instances you know, reliance upon scientific management, where the scientific management did not, in fact, had its own blinders. Um, in the case of the Great Slave Lake fishery, it, it poorly understood some of the relationship between inshore and offshore fisheries, which you can actually speak of in Great Slave Lake because it's a large enough, a large enough lake. So certainly that that has been a big part of it, but also just the fact that um, you know there the desire for opportunities um, in fisheries um, and the potential, the the sense that there was always another lake that you could go to, at least mm-hmm. in the case of inland fisheries, was another thing that, that encouraged over-exploitation because there was always water to be exploited um, and there was never going to, it was never going to all run out. So. Has anyone else found something similar in their in their own research? Sean, it's, it's Doug here. I just wanted to jump in um, on a slightly different track. With your introduction to this question, it was interesting you, you used the words exhaust and, and deplete mm-hmm. as, as though these were markers of, of over-exploitation, and, 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 and I think they probably are, so this comment isn't to disagree with that as markers. It's just that, that over-exploitation, the word over suggests above something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so then the question is, so then what is the standard of, of appropriate exploitation above which is, is too much? And, I, and, and maybe this goes back to some of the opening uh, comments from others, that, that the ways in which we've thought about fish and about what amounts to an over-exploitation has, has changed because of the ways in which uh, we've organized our management of the fishery has, has, has changed. But it's, I guess it's clear that we, or it's important that we be clear what it is we're using fish for and 
what level we think is appropriate, and it's only then that we're in a position to say, okay, this is over that appropriate limit. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind. This is Dean, uh, Dean Babington here. I, I would like to pick up on that, that comment by Doug because I think within the fisheries, you can sort of, I'm becoming really interested in sort of tracing the language and how the language of fishing shifts from uh, sort of talking about uh, fish and fishing people uh, and the practice of fishing um, in a, a sense of what's appropriate and fitting in a particular context um, and a lot of political contestation over changes in gear types and with the colonial with colonization as well a lot of labeling certain ways of fishing types of fishing as uh, non as wasteful but also as uncivilized in a sense mm -hmm. so this language of um, and and now in the contemporary period, the the language of of aquaculture picks up on this notion of uh, of of fishing as if it's done in, in a way that's not economically rational. It's framed as something that needs to be eliminated, something that's a threat to conservation, to biology, but also to the character of the fisher person themselves, which I think ties a lot into the. Um, the the recreational fisheries in particular, but just the language now that I'm seeing of within fisheries, we now refer to fishermen as fish harvesters, as if fishing itself is a harvesting activity like uh, like planting, like farming on land, um, or using industrial language and metaphors around maximum sustainable yield or exploitation rates, appropriate exploitation rates. And I think that underlying this language change is sort of a shift from the dominant way of understanding appropriate ways of organizing relationships between fish and people being one around qualitative um, designations to, to ones that involve number, quantitative measurements, um, and therefore the ability to set up what what Bruno Latour calls centers of calculation, you know, the ability for Ottawa to be able to manage fisheries both inland and marine um, all over the country comes into existence, I think, with this change in language, which is which is then codified, I guess, in in the type of uh, the four major changes that the Doug outlined in the beginning there, which I think were were very synoptic in terms of the influence that these changes have had. And and if we can't talk, um, and like the Doug's point's well taken about over-exploitation, and uh, but certainly we can talk about the intensification of, of, of fishing and fishing effort, um, especially, you know, tech technological changes and capital investment and I mean that's I think um, you know the story that we see developing in the late 19th century and and not just the ad adaptation or adoption of um, you know power steam and, and gas and diesel but uh, even things like moving from hand lines to tub trawls to long lines in the uh, eastern halibut fishery um, but certainly, you know, intensifying effort through, uh, you know, more efficient uh, forms of fishing like the, uh, like the trawler and the otter trawl 
Um, those are certainly, and, those, and it required you know vast amounts of capital to uh, to uh, to build those boats, to uh, set them afloat, uh, and then the shore-based processing plants needed to uh, you know to handle those those growing numbers of of uh, uh, of um, you know fish caught, and uh, and also just to um, um, to uh, Tie this up with um, Dean's point too. I guess another factor would have been the you know the modeling of fisheries and and uh, as he mentioned you know population, but the whole development of a maximum sustained yield uh, model of, of of fishing. I mean that um, you know that that uh, that that is implicated in in the ground fish uh, moratorium and the collapse there of of, of fisheries. And I know uh, Dean can can talk to that. I liked uh, Doug's point, um, and I recognized that when I constructed the question, that the language itself embodied presuppositions about an economic or industrial logic. So I wonder then, as historians of fisheries, how you write about exploitation. Um, if we recognize that what we might define as over-exploitation might be historically contingent, um, how do we write about the, uh, the human effects on uh, the biology of another species? Um, maybe I'll just make one comment just just to start off discussion of that, and it's just about the notion of exploitation itself. And um, like there is a kind of a pervasive idea, you know, popularized in the tragedy of the commons and so on, that that human appetites for resources are potentially unlimited. But there is an important strand in the history of Canadian fisheries of actually trying to create a market and trying to create an appetite for fish products mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. you know the appetite is not necessarily unlimited but uh, uh, federal fisheries department and so on have tried for decades to make sure that fish have a bigger presence in supermarkets across the country that they're available for sale all year round if possible so in other words to try to construct mm-hmm. uh, a larger appetite for fish than might otherwise exist Absolutely, yeah. The I just was thinking about um, you know focus on exports. I mean that's been that's been a feature of um, of uh, you know fisheries since Moses Purley was you know looking at fisheries in New Brunswick and and uh, criticizing the underproduction or lack of uh, sophistication in in their fisheries and emphasizing you know the need to compete in a global market. And this is in the 1850s and that pressure to to uh, you know, perfect your techniques so that you can compete. Um, you, you, it's not for domestic consumption, but for to earn export revenue. So, is this concern about under exploitation? In a in a way, well, I mean, yeah. I, I'm I'm Thanks. you know, yeah, looking at um, at uh, yeah, the inefficiency. I think Dean had you know talked mm-hmm. about this about uh, you know critiquing the fishermen, uh, the fishermen being the problem. Uh, not being sufficiently market oriented, not being sufficiently um, uh, efficient, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you will, you know, and uh, so that's and and um, in, in at least in nineteenth century Gulf fisheries, you see that in terms of the critiques that are offered by Pierre Fortin on the on the Gulf of Saint Lawrence by Moses Purley in New Brunswick, mm-hmm. and uh, by Whiteeves, um, uh, J. F. Whiteeves, who's doing the um, surveys through the the biological surveys of the Saint Lawrence in the eighteen seventies. You know, they're all share this critique of um, of inefficient production. And and certainly, are, well, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. certainly in the 20th century, you see that in the inland fisheries where the, they just don't have under-exploitation is what drives the desire to open the commercial fisheries. And part of the reason that they ignore the 
concerns that immediately arise when these commercial fisheries open is because of different definitions of what constitutes over-exploitation for the predominantly Aboriginal communities um, or even non-Aboriginal communities that have been harvesting fish domestically on the largest lakes. Um, this, you know, the, the very quick drop-off in what they were catching and the change in some of the composition of the catches meant to them that it was over-exploited, but that didn't register as over-exploitation over along the lines that had been defined by the scientists who were regulating the fishery. And so it wasn't until there, you know, the, the exploitation became a problem in terms of their criteria that it actually, that it actually stimulated action. Mm. Um, and even then they were very hesitant to, to roll back quotas, for example, because the goal was always to open markets and to create a market for northern fish um, rather than to, to be concerned about whether they were overdoing it. I mean, yeah. can environmental historians use um, species extinction or near species extinction as a kind of demarcation of overexploitation? Well, sometimes those species extinctions are not of the species that were being exploited. Um, sure, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in, th in that sense, you know, I, I think that you can... Um, that's, I think, one of the problems that flows from perhaps using the language of over-exploitation. Mm -hmm. Because there can be, you know, they, there can be habitat change that change or, you know, larger changes in the environment that, that flow from... Um, the, that flow from fishing activities that that lead to species extinction, um, mm -hmm. or even fish introductions. You know, this is what you have in Lake Winnipegosis. They introduce carp into it, and it becomes a carp lake um, because the carp just completely transform the environment. Um, mm. And so, thing other things, other species go extinct, but it's not because it was overexploited. So, I think that's that's you know, if that's a problem with simply using um, extinction or extirpation mm. as a measure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think commercial extinction mm. is 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 a term um, that you know is so that ex extinction, a biological extinction, is often not what leads to the final elimination of, of fisheries. Mm -hmm. But I, I think I just wanted to sort of re-emphasize a, a point I think that Doug made at the beginning, which was what are these fisheries for? And you know, it just really goes back to. Uh, at least uh, the distinction made by Marx, right, in, in capital around use value and exchange value. And, and Canadian fisheries have been developed for, as we're saying, the export market. They continue to be oriented towards the export market. Uh, and therefore, they've been seen in terms of exchange value solely pretty much in terms of exchange value and then people's the way in which all the diverse fishing practices of various different peoples and nations across the country present-day Canada can then be sort of judged in terms of how they relate to exchange value as as opposed to the incommensurable uses of fish that have occurred and continue to occur across the country that are not legible from the center and does this relate to Doug's first point, his four points about the big changes since Confederation? I think the second one was the uh, redefinition of fish as property. Yes, yeah, exactly. And and how that sort of creeps in. Even the language today, I think we've lost uh, within the academic literature, there's a lot of uh, distinctions now made between common property and uh, private property. But very little discussion about commons, fishing commons, 
the, the types of thick social relations that are involved with understanding fish as part of a commons as opposed to common property of any type, property of any type, common or individually alien, you know, alienated or alienable. <laughs> Well, maybe we can shift gears for a moment now to think a little bit about the uh, effects of the relationship, changing relationship between fish and people uh, in Canada since since 1867, and what what effects um, that these these changing ideas about fish and the uses of fish for industrial economic purposes have had on uh, the lives of uh, indigenous people in Canada. From the Pacific Coast, there's an, a number of, I think, important observations. The first is that, um, is that Aboriginal labor was essential in their early industrial commercial fishery, and so this industrial exploitation of the fishery here created employment opportunities, uh, primarily men in the fish boats and, and Aboriginal women in the canneries. Hmm. And, uh, and that need for labor disappeared very early on the south coast. It, it lingered into the mid-20th century on the central and northern coasts of the Pacific. Um, so that's like, the first point. I think that the second and larger point, I think, is 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 really the story of dispossession, um, that, that, that the fisheries were were constructed in law as a, as a common property or really an open access resource which was which opened those fisheries up to to capital and and erased the prior legal regime that had, that had governed access and and Aboriginal peoples without access to capital sometimes explicitly excluded from being fish processors um, uh, were dispossessed when when their labor was no longer needed and and so the larger story is is one of dispossession that, that that's a beginning uh, to change now as, as, as in part a result of the constitutional entrenchment of rights and the, the recognition of those rights in court cases. There's a, there's, I think, a recognition that a significant portion of the fishery needs to be reallocated back to, to Aboriginal peoples, a, a transition that's, that's, that's a difficult one in many parts of the, of, of the country. But, but nonetheless, I think a process that's, that's underway and and it does need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that and that contest has been you know really a key part of the historiography of fisheries in Canada. I mean, uh, Michael Toms, Bill Parento, you know, it's 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 been that focus on that that process of disposition through, as Doug says, the the this elaboration of a common property uh, fisheries as a, as no as a public public access. Commons. I think also um, just thinking about the relationship between aquaculture, uh, the way in which aquaculture has been tied up with with both British and French colonialism, the idea of planting, you know, not only uh, people but also different types of species, including uh, types of fish that. Um, especially in inland inland fisheries have increasingly been oriented towards sport fisheries and the types of species that people want to catch 
um, uh, and then defining other species that sport fishermen are not interested in, in targeting as trash or somehow getting in the way, and then actually trying to engineer uh, through aquaculture the, the makeup, uh, the species composition, the populations of certain types of, uh, uh, of fish, no matter where they are. So that I think that points to one of the reasons why we have like more Atlantic salmon now existing in the Pacific Ocean, right, being grown on aquaculture sites, um, but also ties right into I think this emphasis on sport fishing over subsistence or over uh, traditional use and exchange of of fisheries uh, between uh, First Nations and between First Nations and 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 uh, colonizing nations. Now, Doug, your tone sounds hopeful about the constitutional prospects for enhancing uh, access for Aboriginal people to fisheries, but I wonder what the limits are of um, the amendments in 1982 in terms of Aboriginal rights and treaty rights. At least in Supreme Court cases, uh, it, it seems that it's been more often that Aboriginal peoples have been able to uh, assert more firmly treaty rights than they have been able to assert Aboriginal rights to access to natural resources. And I think about cases in the Maritimes. Um, and what might be the implications for nations that don't have historic treaties? And what might be the implication for nations that do have historic treaties but have extinguished Aboriginal rights? So it's an interesting and important point. And I think that, I think what the cases and the development of the law since 1982 is that there's now broad, widespread, and accepted recognition of the priority of Aboriginal peoples to a food, social, and ceremonial fishery. Mm. That, that seems clear, and, 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 and although you know, some disputes linger around it, the larger disputes are over the questions of Aboriginal priority to commercial fisheries. Mm. So... Um, so to what extent should the law recognize a constitutional right and therefore the priority over other fisheries who don't hold a constitutional right to to an Aboriginal commercial fishery? And, and that's where the courts have, have, have struggled. They've attempted where they recognize rights to commercial fisheries to, to try and insert some sort of internal limit by, by limiting the commercial right to a right to a moderate livelihood or mm -hmm. uh, to, to something that's, uh, um, that doesn't allow for a full-blown commercial exploitation. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the that's where the difficulty is that courts, and it's not just courts, it's a, it's a difficult question for society how one, how one makes these choices around the allocation of a, of in most cases a diminishing resource. Um, I also wanted to, sorry, to jump back to something that w Doug said at the earlier answer to the question, which had to do with dispossession um, and Aboriginal people's access to fisheries. And that that is that in many instances it was fisheries that were used or that, whether by Indigenous people or by um, various levels of state, to tie in Aboriginal people to particular places. So... Mm -hmm. Um, you see this in British Columbia, you see this in the Northwest Territories where the, the first reserve um, that existed was uh, a, a lake reserve. It was in the water, it wasn't on land. Um, and, you know, so so you have Aboriginal people being sort of 
pushed into particular places and situated in particular places, and then when those fisheries um, decline, uh, suffering as a result or facing the repercussions of that much more greatly than they would otherwise. And um, you really see the, the connections between fish and communities across the country in terms of, you know, it was typically it was fishing sites that were community gathering places um, historically. And then that persisted into the into some of the communities that have endured into the 20th century. Um, but it's also led to, to some of the socioeconomic problems that have flowed from um, whether it's collapses in fisheries or, or the, the need to turn to other kinds of labor. Um, and something else which hasn't really been, uh, that we haven't really talked about so far has been the way in which fisheries have alternatively been um, a source of health and a source of illness for um, Aboriginal communities. And um, this is and this is a historical change, I think, because it has been really in the 20th century that they've become more of a source of illness than a source of health in some instances, whether it was mm. because of typhoid outbreaks that were connected to canning operations or to hatcheries um, that were at times quite quite regular, particularly in the in the mid 20th century, um, and more recently, um, the ways in which uh, concerns about toxic contaminations have made fish into uh, a you know, a harmful part of the diet as opposed to a, a, an important enriching part of the diet. And that is, and it, it's not only that, it's not, you know, this isn't a change that's been, they went from being a source of health to being a source of illness, but certainly that 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 place of illness has, has come to figure more prominently because of the changed exploitation of fish and because of the, the change, you know, wider changes in the environment and how they've affected fish populations and human populations. Right, and this has come up in northern Alberta with concerns about downstream effects from bitumen exploitation in the Athabasca region and what impact that's having on water and fish um, for northern peoples. Yeah, and it speaks to the huge problems <laughs> with the changes to the Fisheries Act and because of the ways in which you know that those acts have been used in the past 20 years by communities, small communities in northern Alberta mm -hmm. to challenge um, various forms of, of oil extraction, whether in the oil sands industry or in the conventional oil industry. And losing that opportunity, you know, taking that opportunity away has significantly affected the ability of northern, often predominantly Aboriginal communities, and so they've been at the forefront of some of the legislative challenges to the changes to the Fisheries Act that have appeared in the most recent um, uh, omnibus uh, bills. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit more directly then about the role of the federal, state, and science, which each of you have brought up in, in some form here. Um, Stephen, maybe you can give us a bit of an outline of, of what that relationship has been uh, over maybe the 19th and 20th century between science, the state, and fish. Okay, um, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, like science has been um, working its way through a lot of the issues that people have mentioned already, among other things, about just how you define over-exploitation and also how you define under-exploitation. And so how science is applied to fisheries has a lot to do with how people understand the, the relation between fisheries and society and the economy more generally and also like the appropriate relationship between uh, fishers and the state and, and larger economic actors. Um, so like well, some of the most significant roles historically for science has been in terms of trying to expand markets for fisheries, developing new products, you know, the 
the research that's gone into brilliant initiatives like uh, innovations like fish sticks, for example. Um, and, you know, new freezer approaches to freezing fish, that kind of stuff. As mm -hmm. Building markets generally. And then um, certainly over the last few decades, probably the most controversial area of fishery science, I guess, which Dean especially has written so much about, uh, just about uh, um, the assessment of, popu of, of, of fish populations and using uh, estimates of population size to feed into um, decisions about uh, stock, about um, about regulation and, and limits on catches and that kind of thing with the idea of ensuring maximum sustainable yield with, with the the covert idea that um, getting less than the maximum sustained yield would be as serious a problem as getting more than the maximum sustained yield. Yeah. Uh, it's only really been more recently in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, I think, that there's been really overt interest in, my, in the scientific community in the larger environment of fish, mm. at least in, in terms of marine fisheries. Um, and that's cer you certainly see that, I think, in 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 increasing interest in taking an ecosystem perspective on fisheries management, however that's defined, uh, also in taking an ecosystem approach to um, to aquaculture. So in general, I guess we'd see an overall kind of sweep of from um, focusing just on the product itself to focusing just on the populations to gradually taking more of an ecosystem perspective. And Will, have you found that in your own historical research? I mean, one other question that we might explore here is is whether science and the state and industry have always been aligned in their interests in fish. Mm -hmm. uh, well, certainly uh, in 19th century Ontario, you know, which was the um, the center for for Canadian uh, state aquaculture. I mean, those those uh, there was a very close alliance between all three of those actors. Um, uh, and but also and and I mean um, fish culture is also an interesting case of uh, sort of the changes of uh, between between science and and the state as well. I mean that was it was assumed to be a science in uh, in the mid nineteenth century and the uh, panacea to uh, to uh, you know problems of uh, of supply and demand and that uh, fish culture would uh, would solve these would solve these problems simple simple linear you know inputs and and outputs um, and certainly that that model started to decay by the end of the nineteenth century and critiques about fish culture uh, coming from uh, coming from from the science community um, uh, versus you know the practical men of fish culture so i'm i 've been interested in that sort of um, that evolution you know the sort of the emergence of applied fishery science in the late nineteenth century and its critique of uh, of fish culture Dean, I wonder if you might want to jump in here and let yeah. us know what the case was that you looked at in Newfoundland yeah well I, I guess. I think that, I mean, I think that everything's, uh, there's been a very good review already of science in the state. I think the contemporary period, though, I think is interesting also considering mm -hmm. the comments that uh, that were made about the omnibus bill and really the, the, the way I sort of see it now is the state and, and really all states, but certainly the Canadian state, the fisheries, mm -hmm. uh, fisheries managers are sort of in a real bind because 
they they're being asked now to adopt this ecosystem approach for everything from aquaculture to commercial fisheries to recreational to aboriginal fisheries and yet um all the the tools that we have the whole legal structure that we've set up around fisheries is based around the single species population model mm-hmm. um so what we're really getting is a hollowing out of the state um, in terms of their ability to even conduct single species fisheries management. So in other words, now instead of doing annual surveys of commercially viable populations, they're starting to do them every two or three years or in some cases every five years. Um, so there's been a real cutback in the capacity of the state to do fishery science reg- uh, in order to regulate single species populations right mm. at the moment too when we're when when uh, managers are being asked to adopt this ecosystem approach, which is being really being asked to do a lot more with a lot less. Um, so so I, I think there's a real situation where we're sort of in the middle of a, a the paradigm has shifted within fishery science itself. In fact, the the idea of maximum sustainable yield and single species populations being able to be managed at the maximum sustainable rate was sort of uh, disavowed by fishery scientists right around the time it was uh, encoded into the international law of the sea by the end of the night in Canada in 1977 with the extension of our 200 mile limit. So I think we're really in this in a situation where we have a new paradigm of science, but in but fisheries management is still operating with these what have been discredited scientific ideas, but which are needed to continue the focus on everything we've been talking about, export-oriented fisheries, dispossessing uh, Aboriginal people and also other fishermen themselves of ownership of the stock. So this is interesting. You agree to some extent with Stephen about a, a trend in the past 10 to 20 years of a shift toward thinking about ecosystems and the relationship yes. between fish in a broader ecosystem. Does that shift in the science account for, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but an increasing uh, tension between government and federal fisheries scientists in the present? Well, yeah, I think that, so. The muzzling of so the need if you're if you're being asked to maintain this facade of a failed scientific paradigm of how we understand fish, then it becomes very important to manage uh, the ability for anyone to go against that that particular perspective. So we see the not only the muzzling of scientists within the Canadian government, but also the muzzling of the ability for fishery scientists to communicate internationally, which has always been a very important uh, role in, in fishery science and fisheries management. And is this a major change historically? I mean, from what I've read about Canadian fisheries history, and from what a lot of what you've said here uh, today, uh, that that the state, the federal state, and fisheries scientists for most of the 19th and 20th century worked very well together. There was, uh, to some extent, they, I think you could say that the state and fishery scientists did work well together because they didn't work together at all, really. (laughs) (laughs) In the sense that scientists were given quite a big degree of latitude, especially, you know, Mm -hmm. the Fisheries Research Board of Canada, which was Mm. explicitly meant to be an independent research agency, and they could follow their own noses in terms of determining their research priorities, kind of like university scientists, more or less. 
you know, following disciplinary priorities defined by the fish by the scientist scientific community. And it's really been, you know, with the elimination of the Fisheries Research Board in the seventies and since then that that the state has felt that, well, uh, science is basically a policy tool and it's the job of scientists to get on board and support whatever the policy of the day is. And it's not their role as scientists to provide a an independent voice critiquing government policy or something like that, but it is simply as a, a it's an instrument of policy and no more, no less. So is this a late 20th century phenomenon or were there earlier uh, episodes in the 20th century or even the 19th century where scientists critiqued government policy related to fisheries? Well, um, well I know that within the within the scientific with the emergence of understanding fish as populations that comes out of uh, out of Prussia or Germany um, there was a, sort of a lot of disputes within the scientific community around whether uh, but it was sort of summarized as the difference between the lumpers and the splitters so there were there were there were sort of scientists advocating that there were basically very few large aggregated stocks of single species populations which would then lead to a more large scale or national level scale of governance and then you had those advocating no we're finding populations everywhere the splitters which then had the implication that that would lead to more decentralized fisheries management and I I think with the rise of national uh, fisheries management you get the the lumpers are really by necessity win out that debate. Now, within ecosystem approach, I think there's all sorts of other debates developing, um, at like in the in the contemporary moment with 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 other political implications associated with those scientific representations. Um, I don't know if Stephen, do you how do you find the relationship between aquaculture and this new ecosystem approach developing? The, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't mean. I mean, in terms yeah. of the state, you know, the role of the state in science and yeah. Well, and, it's been, yeah, it's been very. It's been a huge challenge for kind of the the federal, especially research apparatus relating research apparatus relating to uh, to aquaculture because mm-hmm. up until pretty recently, the greater weight of research activity was on more strictly industrial goals like. Finding ways to produce more efficient, produce fish more efficiently, basically like right. uh, less with less feed, producing more fish flesh, and it's only been in the last um, ten years or so that uh, that the, the state research system has been more or less compelled to pay more attention to the environmental impacts of aquaculture, and it's done so reluctantly, I think, and mainly in response to outside pressure, like. Uh, um, in as a require as because of the need to respond to the scientific results being generated by um, university scientists or scientists working for environmental organizations that yeah. more or less over the last like certainly with the formation of large scale salmon aquaculture over the last twenty or thirty years the state has tried to take a very strong role in supporting the industry and it's seen um, science as a really important tool in supporting the industry, but it's only recently been that it's been compelled then to redirect science towards defending science, defending the industry from its critics rather than simply 
responding to direct in, in, uh, mm -hmm. industrial goals. And that's and that's certainly um, sort of been sharpened by I think the Cohen Commission in BC, which has uh, you know uh, brought um, brought un aquaculture under uh, under uh, under the the lens to implicating it in in terms of uh, you know declines in or challenges to uh, uh, the sockeye population in the Fraser River. And one of the uh, one of the recommendations was uh, to um, to uh, have more uh, stringent siting requirements for. Um, for aquaculture operations in uh, in uh, in Georgia Strait and and uh, surrounding waters, so that's that's been I think uh, uh, and that's like a, a critique from outside of uh, outside of the state directed to it and directed towards um, fisheries management and and the close relationship between uh, you know fisheries managers and the promotion of aquaculture and again that was another sort of finding of that commission was to to uh, that the federal government needs to divest itself of that, or the fisheries department needs to divest itself of that promotional role, and uh, and and focus on regulatory issues. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the historical precedents for um, the role of government and fishery scientists in uh, promoting aquacultural development in uh, in Canada. And from there, we could perhaps talk about why government today and industry today is investing so heavily mm -hmm. uh, in aquaculture. Sure. Well, I mean, um, I mean, the basic story uh, is nineteenth century, nineteenth century Ontario, and Samuel Wilmot, who uh, was actually running a, a, a private operation uh, uh, east of uh, east of Toronto, um, and uh, culturing Atlantic salmon, which is a sort of a nice paradigmatic uh, story of uh, you know of a, a fisheries extinction there. Um, but um, he he basically was running a, a private operation and hoped to uh, sort of enclose his own fishery through that. But uh, it came to the attention of of the federal government and uh, in effect uh, what was a private operation became the basis for you know a very huge um, state operation I mean really kind of the the fundamental technological center of Canadian Fisheries Administration through you know from 1868 onwards um, and so uh, there was a very close uh, connection between you know producing salmon for uh, the commercial fisheries to recover that commercial fishery which was, you know, there was a host of environmental factors um, implicated in its in its demise. So it really is was, um, you know, sort of a a, a public private uh, uh, operation and, and an interesting, you know, uh, um, uh, sort of like state formation story in in effect of you know sort of a middle class bourgeois man um, uh, sort of uh, bootstrapping this 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 uh, fish culture into a into a you know critical piece of of state fisheries administration and um, you know by the 1880s I mean there was um, you know upwards of 15 hatcheries in in Canada and um, and uh, as I said there you know there was critique of of the whole aquacultural program state aquacultural program um, and then sort of its transfer over to the provinces at about the time that uh, the fisheries jurisdiction issue came up but uh, you know it's been central to to uh, to Canadian fisheries administration but it seems now that aquaculture is driving a lot of the federal government's energies or devoting it's devoting a lot of its energies toward the development of, of aquaculture. What accounts for this? Why has, is government and industry becoming so heavily invested uh, in, in making fish? Well, I think the, the, simple question, the simple answer is that it's a $125 billion worldwide industry. I mean, it's massive. 
um, and uh, um, you know, and, and and salmon are a high. I mean, Canadian Canadian production, I think, globally, like, is is a, is a drop in the bucket. But in terms of of a high value fish, salmon, you know, demands high high prices on on uh, on the international market, export markets. So uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, it's almost a billion dollar industry in Canada. So it's just uh, and since you know, I think it was what was it last last month that the the proportion of uh, fish produced by aquaculture industry has exceeded now uh, you know wild fish production I mean um, so that's and they're looking down the road and seeing that that's just going to continue so it's a matter of um, you know continuing that very close relationship between the state and uh, and private industry I think also it, it it really aquaculture really touches on and builds from notions of what proper environmentalism is um, the idea I think we've we've had a it's it's hard for uh, for hunting uh, and and also uh, fishing as part of that hunting a wild species um, it's hard for that to be uh, to be seen uh, as something that would fit with sort of a stewardship or cultivated uh, civilized way of interacting with with nature and with fish so you really I see within the contemporary aquaculture industry um, you know when responding to critics it's it's often to sort of frame fishing as something that's located in the past uh, and something that's somewhat barbaric um, and not not advanced like aquaculture where the idea is you're controlling um, for for all the different variables, you're cultivate you're actually domesticating the the fish uh, the, themselves, um, and I think it's also played out not only the role of the state but the role of the university sector um, and the provincial government sector in in supporting this move towards the domestication of of, of fisheries. So you see here at Memorial University. Um, you know the the initial work that went into the aqua bounty uh, Atlantic salmon, the genetically modified Atlantic salmon that uh, it looks like will probably be approved by the United States, the Food and Drug Administration, starting within the university and having public funds sort of support the spin-off, the privatization um, of of not only fisheries and stocks, but the the actual genetic material in the fish themselves. And, and what's the modification? Does it grow as a fish stick or something? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, not quite there yet, but it grows uh, <laughs> it grows very quickly, very rapidly, and because um, and and also very focused on the feed conversion ratio. You know, the amount of feed you have to feed before you get a certain amount of marketable flesh. That that sort of uh, while that area of control and emphasis maybe has shifted off the wild fishery, a lot of those federal dollars that went into maybe supporting fish stick, you know, production and new 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 methods of of processing, are now going towards this this focus on um, the creation of patentable organisms, genetically modified organisms, which I think brings in the legal aspect. It's a new sort of enclosure, a new property. Um, yeah, a, a new form of property at at the where the the value now is in the genetic in the informational content 
in the species that are left in the biodiversity that's left in the ocean, whereas our whole regulatory structure is oriented around valuing fish for their biomass, their weight, you know, the the, the flesh that we, mm -hmm. we pull out of the ocean. When, you know, within this new biotechnology, the value is actually in the gen genetics, and and there's no um, there's no mechanism for any of the 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 profits that would come from isolating and creating these new genetically modified organisms to go back to the public where these or where the biodiversity actually is in the first place um, so I think it's raising a lot of new concerns uh, aquaculture in terms of how we regulate fish and where the value is seen to exist in, in fisheries and what are some of the ecological concerns uh, associated with aquaculture? I know that in the Pacific there's um, anxiety about what effect expansion of aquaculture development on the Pacific coast will have on wild fisheries. Um, what are kind of the ecological consequences of this shift in the fisheries uh, industry in Canada? Well, I guess... Uh uh, over the last few decades, aquaculture has been controversial for a lot of reasons having to do with its ecological impacts. Um, some of them had to do with kind of what you'd, the impacts that you'd expect of any kind of concentrated feedlot operation in, a, in an ecosystem with, with a large amount of concentrated salmon flesh producing a lot of organic waste and uneaten food and so on with local effects in terms of nutrient enrichment, uh, concerns about, to some extent, about toxic contaminants being released like uh, by anti-fouling paint used on the fish farms and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the biggest issue certainly over the last 10 years has been um, the uh, likely role of salmon farms as reservoirs for parasites um, and how by producing vast numbers of parasites, especially sea lice, they could mm -hmm. affect populations of wild salmon that are swimming nearby, especially young wild salmon that are just leaving streams and heading out into the ocean. Uh, and so as a, as a reservoir for parasites, for viruses and so on, uh, for pathogens of all various, of various kinds, um, that's that, the sort of biological pollution has been really kind of the, um, the, the dominant concern lately. It is an inappropriate analogy. I mean, when I think about salmon farming and sea lice, I think about John Sandloss's book on uh, wildlife conservation in the north and the case study of the transfer of uh, bison from the south to the north and the dissemination of brucellosis and bovine tuberculosis among wood buffalo uh, or wood bison in the north uh, and in, in an effort to try and domesticate the animal for a meat industry it's a bit relevant but but not not quite because um uh, this, like the parasites, the sea lice, they weren't necessarily brought to the ecosystem by mm -hmm. uh, by the Atlantic salmon that are grown now on the Pacific coast. They were there already. They're, they're a natural part of the ecosystem. And uh, what the fish farms just do is provide a, a nice habitat for them to, to go forth and multiply. Mm. So, and that's, you know, that is something that fish farmers themselves often say over and over again that, why are you worried? Sea lice is a natural part of the ecosystem. Um, salmon have been handling it for, for thousands of years. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a question of importing a parasite from, from outside necessarily. Well, I have 
dozens of more questions, but we are certainly out of time. I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us here today. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Will, Dean, and Stephen for a, a really lively conversation to give us a little bit of historical perspective on a very complicated aspect of Canada's environmental history. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Great. <laughs> this was great. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Networking Canadian History and Environment, the Robarts Centre for Canadian Studies, and Canada's History Magazine. This episode was made by Andrew Watson, Stacey Nation Knapper, Dean Babington, Stephen Bocking, Douglas Harris, William Knight, Lisa Piper, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. To keep up with work in the field of environmental history, I encourage listeners to download our iOS app, which works on iPhone, iPod Touch, and the iPad. You can get the app at niche-canada.org slash envhist. That's E-N-V-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.